Today's podcast is the second in the series of evidence-based clinical management of advanced and castration-resistant prostate cancer. Today's talk is an update on the AUA-SUO guideline and beyond. Hello, and welcome to AUA's evidence-based clinical management of advanced and castration-resistant prostate cancer educational series, webinar number two, Emerging Treatment of M0-CRPC, update on the AUA-SUO guidelines and beyond. This is the second webinar in a four-part series. If you missed the first webinar in this series, please visit AUA University to access the webcast and podcast versions of the activity. Thank you to course director, Dr. Michael Cookson, and faculty, Dr. Leonard Gamella and Dr. Alicia Morgan for joining us today. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. The AUA would like to thank the following companies for providing independent educational grants in support of this webinar. Astellis, Faring Pharmaceuticals, Genomic Health, Janssen Biotech, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, Medivation, a Pfizer company, Sanofi Genzyme, and Tomar Pharmaceuticals. Coding advice given during presentations or the opinions of the presenters and may not have been vetted through the AUA for accuracy. Please verify accuracy prior to recording on medical claims. I will now turn the webinar over to course director, Dr. Michael Cookson. Thank you very much, Helen. Um, pleasure to be here with you tonight, and we're going to go over a little bit of the learning objectives and then get right into to the two didactic talks. Uh, our goal here is to try and um, explain to you the evidence-based uh, guidelines that are behind the management of CRPC and we have a, a kind of an aggressive timeline to do that within an hour. Um, we really want to focus on some of the new developments such as the uh, M0 or the non-metastatic space as well as to review some of the established guidelines for uh, metastatic or M1 disease. We'll talk about the different agents and the mechanisms of action as well as the uh, clinical data that actually got them their FD approvals. Okay, we're going to move on now to our first talk and as all of you probably are aware, the management of men with castration-resistant disease is a multidisciplinary approach and patient outcomes are improved when we have this type of approach. And so medical oncology, urologic oncology, radiation oncology, palliative care, all part of, of that equation. Uh, we're very pleased tonight to have with us um, Dr. Alicia Morgans. She is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Hematology and Oncology at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. Uh, she completed her MD in internal medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, and she did her fellowship at Dana-Farber. Uh, I had the pleasure of working with her, although briefly, at Vanderbilt for one year, and um, she's, she's delightful and has been a real thought leader in this area, and we're going to hear from her on M0 CRPC emerging treatment options. Thanks so much, Mike. Um, it was too brief that we shared uh, time together, um, but was lovely, of course. Um, and thank you so much for saying um, for mentioning that we should be doing this uh, multidisciplinary approach. I think that's been so important, especially as these therapies have evolved um, and there are so many nuances that we can work together to really sort out. Um, just from a, um, a logistical standpoint, it looks like um, it looks like the talk is is updating um, and is is loading up. Um, and but what I can say, I'm just going to pull up my separate section over here, is that for this talk, we are really going to be focusing on um, on just really the M0 CRPC setting and the new developments in that area. I will re review briefly biochemical recurrence. Um, and, and otherwise, we're going to go into those um, into those studies pretty deeply. Um, so just go to go through the background and start there. Uh, we all know that prostate cancer is exceedingly common, but the majority of men who are diagnosed with prostate cancer end up being diagnosed, thankfully, with localized disease um, and, and are treated as such. 
But what's important to recognize, I think, um, certainly I tell our medical oncology fellows this, and, and urologists know it well, is that 15 to 40% of the patients we treat for localized prostate cancer are going to develop biochemical recurrent disease or metastatic disease within 10 years. So, uh, and, and there's always a question and, and has been um, literature to suggest that as we've changed PSA screening guidelines, that number may creep higher as we operate on or, or treat with radiation sort of higher risk localized patients. Um, in any event, the median time to biochemical recurrence uh, has been um, quoted around two to three years. And there are several factors that we think about strongly. We'll go into the data on this, but PSA doubling time is really strongly associated with metastasis-free survival in this population and, and has become or is, a, um, is something that we think about when we're, we're starting treatment for biochemical recurrent disease. Um, you know, biochemical recurrent disease, and here we have some slides which will be helpful. I'm going to try to forward through here. Biochemical recurrent disease is defined um, in different ways um, by different groups. And I think that this group should be very familiar with the AUA definition, which is really focused on patients who have had a prostatectomy for, for clear reasons. Um, and this definition is that a PS, is a PSA over 0.2 nanograms per milliliter measured at least six weeks after a radical prostatectomy. And then it does require a confirmatory check, um, and that PSA being persistently over 0.2 nanograms per milliliter. The EAU, or the European Association of Urology, has a very similar definition, also focused on the post-prostatectomy patient population, um, a PSA greater than 0.2 nanograms per milliliter with at least two confirmatory measurements, but it doesn't have that same timeline post-prostatectomy um, in the descriptor. And the ASTRO guidelines or Phoenix criteria really developed to address the issue of how we def define biochemical recurrence after radiation. We know that radiation does not, uh, in some cases, and actually many cases, does not cause patients to have a PSA that is undetectable in the way that we see with prostatectomy. Uh, and so they define it as a nadir plus two nanograms per milliliter. So really the definition of biochemical recurrence depends on the initial treatment. Um, and I would say the AUA and ASTRO criteria, uh, or ASTRO Phoenix criteria, are the two that we use in this country. When thinking about, uh, you know, what happens to the biochemical recurrent population, it's nice to review some data. Um, specifically, this was a, a nice study published by Steve Freeland and his colleagues. They uh, looked at a post-prostatectomy cohort, and then they identified 379 men who underwent prostatectomy and developed biochemical recurrence. And they looked at the factors that were associated with developing biochemical uh, recurrence and then um, mortality uh, related in that, in that population. So um, this is a really uh, a, an effective table that talks about or describes the disease-specific factors that influence the risk of recurrence. Um, and what you can see here and what I've highlighted is that the PSA doubling time, uh, and these times are all relative to 15 months, so doubling time of 15 months, can be really, uh, or appears to be very tightly associated with the risk of developing um, recurrent, uh, actually death after biochemical recurrence after the prostatectomy. So uh, if you have a very short PSA doubling time of less than three months, the hazard ratio is quite large, 27.5 nearly, um, that you may die uh, from metastatic disease after your radical prostatectomy when compared to a patient who has a doubling time of greater than or equal to 15 months. And what's really important to recognize here is not necessarily the specific hazard ratio, but to note that as the PSA doubling time gets longer, um, this hazard ratio goes down. So there's really, almost like we would see in a treatment study, there seems to be a dose effect or um, a, a doubling time uh, length effect associated with the, the risk of death uh, from prostate cancer after biochemical recurrence. Um, the other things I would say to note on, on this particular slide are that the, the Gleason score being greater than or equal to eight also has a hazard ratio associated with a higher risk of mortality after uh, prostatectomy. 
This is just a, a curve describing, again, the PSA doubling time data, really, I think, visually um, helpful in thinking about it. Again, this is prostate cancer-specific survival, and you can see those patients with a PSA doubling time that's very short, at less than three months, have a much shorter prostate cancer-specific survival than those patients uh, with a PSA doubling time of greater than or equal to 15 months. And as we look at the, the duration of PSA doubling time increasing over that period, um, you can see the, the separation of curves there. Um, with a lower PSA doubling time or a shorter time to double that PSA being associated with a much higher risk of mortality. So in a separate study, uh, Matthew Smith and colleagues looked at, um, they were actually looking at uh, some of the bone targeting agents, and, um, but, but in that study they looked at the risk uh, for bone metastasis or death as it related to PSA doubling time and looked at that association. And they also found that a shorter PSA doubling time was highly associated with the risk of developing metastases, and I think what's fascinating about this figure is that there's a pretty clear inflection point um, right after this 10-month point. So whether it's 10 months, 8 months or so, there is an inflection point that suggests this really very um, strong increased risk there of developing uh, bone metastases or death as it relates to this shortening PSA doubling time. So I think about the doubling time very often when I see a patient with biochemical recurrence as I'm thinking about starting an initial treatment for uh, for their recurrence when they have no evidence, of radiographic evidence of disease. Um, and we can see here and remind ourselves that there are multiple options for treatment, including observation. Um, and when patients have a very long PSA doubling time, I, I advocate and I think many of us advocate for considering um, potentially not starting immediate ADT. Um, but especially if the doubling time is, is short, this is something that, that we all do because we recognize the risk of those short doubling times and high Gleason scores in terms of uh, the risk of metastasis and death. One thing I would point out, um, th these are the medical oncology, uh, this is sort of a, I guess, a multidisciplinary uh, NCCN guideline here that intermittent ADT uh, is considered not inferior to continuous ADT for biochemical recurrence, and, and that's something that we commonly uh, use in our clinics. Um, and that, again, uh, these guidelines note that patients with a Gleason score greater than or equal to 8 and a PSA doubling time less than or equal to 10 months may have more aggressive disease and may be the best candidates for treatment. So I, I, I just want to point out that choosing our candidates for systemic therapy in the setting of biochemical recurrence, and this is assuming that if they're a prostatectomy patient, they've had their salvage radiation or adjuvant radiation, if that was the case, um, if appropriate, uh, that, that choosing the candidates for systemic therapy is really important. Um, but once patients are on systemic therapy, um, you know, that's, that's really where the treatment advances have happened this year. So patients who are on intermittent or continuous ADT and then develop castration-resistant disease defined by, you know, a rising PSA in the setting of a castrate level of testosterone and radiographically no evidence of metastatic disease. The studies that really address this, are, we're going to get into just in a minute, but I, I also want to commend the AUA um, for really incorporating these rapidly, these sort of rapidly coming advances and these studies that just came out um, for, to, to the public at GU ASCO this year um, and, and have just been published. These have already been incorporated into the updated AUA guidelines for castration-resistant disease, um, and they really apply, as the circle implies, to index patient one. Um, and already updated in the, in the guidelines here. Just to blow that up a little bit, index patient one is, an, is the M0 CRPC patient. This is a patient with asymptomatic non-metastatic CRPC. Um, and this is a patient with uh, the first clinical presentation of CRPC occurring in a patient with rising PSA despite medical or surgical castration. And it's typically defined as a patient with a rising PSA with no radiographic evidence of metastatic prostate cancer. And, and generally, these patients are going to be asymptomatic, as we saw in, in some of the studies that, that I will discuss in a minute. Now, the AUA guidelines um, have multiple guideline statements associated with them, um, and we're going to really go into guideline statement one in the next few slides. But just to remind everyone that the AUA has other recommendations or at least other um, options that one can consider, I want to make sure that we point that out. Guideline statement two, and again, these two through four are addressing things other than the, the two main studies that I'll talk about in a minute. 
But guideline statement two says that clinicians may recommend observation with continued androgen deprivation to patients with non-metastatic CRPC for those patients who do not want or cannot have one of the standard therapy uh, uh, standard therapies available described in guideline statement one. Um, guideline statement three says that clinicians may offer treatment with a second-generation androgen synthesis inhibitor, and by this they mean abiraterone, acetate, and prednisone, to select patients with non-metastatic CRPC who do not want or cannot have one of the standard therapies and are unwilling to accept observation. The settings in which patients may not be able to obtain one of these therapies might be financial. We should consider that and, and have to keep that in mind given the cost of these drugs. Um, but this is evidence level grade C as, as is the statement too, um, and it's just a, an option. I think that this, and, and certainly Mike, you can comment since you participated in the creation of these guidelines, but this was really developed, uh, I think, as a, as a way to um, kind of address the fact that abiraterone may be going generic at some point in the future and kind of have a recommendation or, a, or at least an option in the, in the guidelines as that happens. And also to reflect that ketoconazole, I think, was, was previously included in these guidelines as an option. And we know that abiraterone is really um, an updated or, or next generation cousin of ketoconazole. Mike, do you want to comment on this guideline statement at all? And you're on mute, Mike. I think that you're exactly right that, you know, this was anticipating that not everybody, and we went through this with the CRPC guidelines for metastatic disease too, and you'll see that in a little bit. There has to be opportunities for clinicians when patients may not be able to receive some of the standard of, you know, therapies, and so we wanted to give options. And I think when you parse out some of the patients from for example, a study called Stampede, you find a few M0 patients, subsets of small groups of patients who may benefit from that type of treatment, but that level of evidence doesn't come close to what we have, say, for our standards in the guideline statements one and two. Great. Thank, thank you. Um, and then moving on to statement four, I think it's really important that they uh, make a statement regarding what they should, what people should not do. Um, and what we should not do is offer systemic chemotherapy or immunotherapy to patients with non-metastatic CRPC outside of the context of a clinical trial. And that's um, really uh, important to keep in mind as well. So let's really dive into guideline statement one, which is I think what, what everyone wants to hear about and talk about, and that's that clinicians should offer apalutamide or enzalutamide with continued androgen deprivation to patients with non-metastatic CRPC at high risk for developing metastatic disease. This is a standard, and it is evidence level grade A, and it's based on um, phase three trials that were published this year, presented at GUASCO, and subsequently published, uh, really responsive to um, rapid-fire data. So the first of these trials is the PROSPER trial. This is a randomized phase three trial of enzalutamide in the non-metastatic or M0 CRPC patient population. And you can see the schema on the slides there. Um, importantly, the, the study, the, the folks who designed the study identified, again, this high-risk patient population, recognizing that for patients with very, very long doubling times, this may not necessarily be the right choice because it may not necessarily be necessary. But in any event, men eligible for this study had a PSA doubling time of less than or equal to 10 months. They had M0 CRPC, and this is on central radiographic review. I think that's also really important to, to recognize that the study um, required standard bone scan, standard CAT scan uh, with IV contrast. Uh, they may have allowed MRI, uh, but Standard imaging is, is the point here. There was no, there were no PSMA PETs. This was not choline, axamin. This was a standard imaging study, and they were reviewed centrally um, by a standard set of radiologists to identify and confirm that they did not have evidence of metastatic disease, again, on standard imaging. Uh, the PSA had to be greater than or equal to 2 nanograms per milliliter so that we, we know that that doubling time being less than 10 months is a, is a real doubling of a real number, not 0.1 to 0.2. 
Um, and so that, that I think is really important. And men were randomized one-to-one to, -one to enzalutamide at standard dose for the MCRPC patient population or placebo, which they took orally every day. They were stratified in the analysis by their PSA doubling time being less than six months versus six to 10 months, as well as their baseline use of bone-targeted agents. And the primary endpoint of this study is metastasis-free survival, really exciting new uh, clinical trial endpoint that's, uh, well, newly recognized by the FDA, um, but very exciting and interesting primary endpoint uh, for this non-metastatic patient population, and multiple other secondary endpoints, including time to pain progression, time to cytotoxic therapy, um, their quality of life by FACT-P, uh, and other quality of life assess assessments, uh, among others. And so if we look at the characteristics between the arms, we see that they're actually quite similar. This is generally an older patient population in their early 70s as a median age. Um, there were uh, most patients actually were in the group of patients who had a PSA doubling time of less than six months, 77% in each arm. Um, and then we can see some of the MFS uh, data and time to first anti-neoplastic data here, but I think it's more effective for us to proceed to the next slide where we can really see the curves. So this is the, the um, Kaplan-Meier curve for the primary endpoint of metastasis-free survival. And you can see the green line on the top is the endolutamide plus ADT arm, and the placebo arm is the blue line on the bottom. And you can see there's a 22-month uh, longer metastasis, time to metastasis-free survival with endolutamide than placebo. So 71% reduction in the relative risk of radiographic progression or death. And this is a composite endpoint of de developing metastatic site or uh, death from, um, from any cause. Uh, and so if we proceed to the next slide, we can see the time to first use of new anti-neoplastic therapy, also a dramatic separation in curves with a median time to the first use of new anti-neoplastic therapy being 22 months longer with enzalutamide than with placebo. Um, and a really uh, very clear separation. These are both highly statistically significant. What's also important, I think, to remember is that um, when we are treating what is an asymptomatic patient population, and the investigators demonstrated this by presenting some quality of life data, this patient population is generally asymptomatic at baseline in terms of pain as well as other symptoms as defined on the FACT-P, uh, which includes emotional, physical, and functional stability as well as social well-being. Um, an asymptomatic patient population is going to um, <clears throat> need to consider how their quality of life will be affected as they consider the efficacy of a drug. And remember what I showed you was not overall survival data because that's not yet mature, but it was metastasis-free survival, so time to developing metastatic disease uh, in, an, in a patient population that at baseline did not have metastatic disease or death from any cause. They need to understand how this affects their quality of life. So, um, so we, what we can see here in, in this very busy table is that uh, at each week, and you can see the weeks defined on the left, 17, 33, 49, et cetera, the patients were treated with endolutamide, who are in the three columns to the left, versus placebo in the three columns to the right, had very similar numbers in terms of proportion of patients who had an improvement in their quality of life or stable disease, and most of them had improvement or stable disease at all time points, and these were all non-statistically significantly different. Uh, between the two arms, the endolutamide arm versus the placebo arm. So they maintained their quality of life uh, for the most part and were very similar to those patients treated with placebo. So moving on to the next study, this is the Spartan trial, uh, a very similar patient population, non-metastatic CRPC. These patients could have pelvic nodes less than two centimeters uh, as long as they were below the iliac bifurcation, um, and th but they did still uh, have to have this PSA doubling time of less than or equal to 10 months. Again, as, as we've discussed multiple times this evening, trying to make sure that they have a really high-risk patient population. Um, patients had to stay on their ADT, and then they were randomized two to one to apalutamide or uh, placebo, and apalutamide is our new androgen receptor antagonist. They were followed for metastasis-free survival with secondary uh, treatments being at the um, MD's discretion, including open-label abiraterone prednisone, which is actually provided to uh, patients on study if that's what they wanted to do, and then they had this second progression-free survival, or PFS2, which is, which is a little bit complicated. We're not going to get into that one so much this evening. 
But when we do think about their demographics and disease characteristics, we can see, again, this is an elderly population, 74 uh, years old for both arms. That's the median age. And again, if we look at the median PSA doubling time, it is very short. So the median here is four months, four and a half months for each arm. Um, and otherwise, uh, their characteristics are, are listed uh, there. But moving on to, to the the meat of the matter here, we see the metastasis-free survival, which is the primary endpoint. We see, again, a beautiful separation of curves with aflutamide having a median time to a median metastasis-free survival of 40.5 months versus the placebo arm with 16.2 months. So the hazard ratio is 0.28, um, and this is a 72% reduction in the risk of metastasis or uh, death. And this is the quality of life data. They use, similarly, the FACT-P score as well as the EQ5D score. And they really demonstrated, again, that health-related quality of life was maintained with the addition of apalutamide to ADT and uh, was actually similar between arms. The, the white arm represents, or the white line representing the placebo arm and the yellow line representing apalutamide. And they're, they're virtually interchangeable on this uh, quality of life, um, these, these uh, figures. So if we think about how these compare head-to-head, -head, there's a really nice table um, that was published here. Uh, these patients were very similar in terms of their inclusion criteria. Um, they, were, they were both, um, as I said, uh, for apalutamide, but I think I misspoke for the PROSPER study, two-to-one randomizations uh, to active drug versus placebo. They had a similar primary endpoint of metastasis-free survival, some different secondary endpoints, but overall survival in both of these as a secondary endpoint, um, we're waiting on the maturation of the data. We do not have overall survival data in either of these studies, and we are eagerly awaiting it. Um, similar numbers of patients, uh, and, and et cetera, here. But I, I just want to emphasize, just related to that overall survival data, that this, this data may ultimately change our perception of these trials. I, I don't know. But uh, we definitely need that data to be able to tell patients they're going to live longer. Um, but right now, we can say that it's a longer time till they develop metastasis. And it was a composite endpoint, uh, this metastasis-free survival. So just to summarize, the AUA guidelines now recommend that clinicians should offer apalutamide or enzalutamide with continued ADT to patients with non-metastatic CRPC. And this prolongs metastasis-free survival in men with a PSA doubling time of less than or equal to 10 months. Both of these agents are approved uh, by the FDA in the non-metastatic CRPC setting. Enzalutamide had an expanded indication granted uh, in the middle of July and apalutamide um, many months before that. Um, and then this second bullet here really applies to treatment of biochemical recurrence uh, in general, that men with a PSA doubling time of greater than or equal to 12 months may consider delaying ADT or intermittent ADT as they're thinking about their first systemic therapy, particularly if they have a low Gleason score. So we have to remember that we need to select these patients carefully because we're subjecting them to potential side effects every time we give them a treatment. Um, but that there are patients, certainly with high-risk disease, who deserve a treatment to prevent the complications that they may experience. Um, and it, as well, quality of life appears similar for men treated with apalutamide and enzalutamide as compared with ADT alone. Um, and the FDA approved both of these agents based on a metastasis-free survival endpoint, which is a new endpoint in prostate cancer and something that uh, is really interesting and, and an advance for the field. Um, so that is all I have. Happy to take questions via the, the, the question log or from Dr. Cookson or Dr. Gamella, or we can move on to Dr. Gamella's talk. Mike, you're still on mute. Thank you, Dr. Morgans, um, and thank you for reminding me. I, one of the things that keeps coming up is like this new endpoint that you've emphasized, but could you um, kind of distinguish like metastasis-free survival from progression-free survival, something that we were more commonly used to? Yeah. So. Um so PFS, I think, is something that we're very comfortable with, but that was defined in patients who had metastatic disease to begin with. And what we were looking for with a PFS endpoint is it's been actually defined by the prostate cancer working group consensus statements, first by uh, prostate cancer working group two, and then by three as it was updated. But um, this is really uh, development of new metastatic sites in patients who have metastatic disease or, um, or growth of those metastatic lesions. Uh, there are some criteria that are a little bit different for bone scans versus uh, progression in soft tissue 
uh, lesions, but these are for patients who already have metastatic sites. Again, that's a composite endpoint that includes survival for many, any cause as well, um, but it's really patients who have metastatic disease to begin with. This metastasis-free survival composite endpoint includes death from any cause, should that be the first event that happens, but for patients who do not have metastatic lesions, this would be the development of their first metastatic lesion. Again, as defined by standard imaging, nuclear uh, medicine bone scan, traditional bone scan, or, um, or CT scan. Um, what's really interesting, and there was a lot of controversy at GU ASCO about this, that um, probably because so many fewer patients were meeting the progression by metastatic disease um, endpoint in the, in the PROSPER study, at least, um, they, they were not progressing to have metastatic disease, but there were some deaths. There was a lot of controversy uh, as to whether there might be deaths associated with enzalutamide, which doesn't, does not appear to be happening at all with the data. Um, but when we have a composite endpoint and we break it down, which we don't typically do with PFS, it can get a little bit mushy. Um, but there were more patients in the placebo arm who progressed in terms of their prostate cancer, as we would expect, um, making this a little bit fuzzy. But in any event, MFS is the development of the, the initial metastatic lesions for these patients who do not have metastatic disease at baseline or death from any cause. And PFS um, is growth or new lesions um, in patients who already have metastatic disease or death from any cause. Okay. We have a question, um, is there any benefit to using apalutamide in M0 patients and delaying enzalutamide for progression to M1? So I think that's a great question. We don't know the answer to that. What we do know from studies thinking about um, abiraterone and enzalutamide, which are not two, two androgen receptor antagonists, you know, one is a steroid synthesis inhibitor and one is an androgen receptor antagonist, that there seems to be uh, a cross resistance. So developing resistance to one makes you much more likely to have already developed than the resistance to the second agent. And one could imagine that if you develop resistance to apalutamide, an androgen receptor antagonist, that, and tried to use enzalutamide after that, that you would have a fair likelihood of being resistant already to enzalutamide given the similar mechanism of action. That being said, we don't have data on it yet, and I think we all look forward to this overall survival data from these studies to be able to think about and learn about subsequent therapies for patients on both of these trials and how they may have responded to them. Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Morgans. We're going to move on to our second talk, and that will it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Leonard Gamella, who is the Bernard Godwin, Jr. Professor of Prostate Cancer and the Chairman of the Department of Urology at Jefferson Medical College. Uh, Dr. Gamella holds many um, academic titles and leadership roles throughout. He's been a president of the Society for Urologic Oncology. Um, he, too many accolades simply to go into in detail, but he's in the top 20, I didn't know this, uh, uh, urologists in the country by, according to Men's Health. He's a distinguished alumni from the University of Kentucky, and I think you can see that tonight. So uh, I, I refer to him as Lenny. Lenny, thank you for being here, and look forward to hearing your talk. Thanks, Mike, and uh, thanks for all those nice accolades. And I'd like to thank the AUA um, partnering with the SUO to bring these programs together. We're most appreciative. and. Uh, Mike will be the, uh, is currently the president-elect of the SUO, and I think he will continue to have great, uh, great uh, involvement with these programs. But I'm going to jump right into my charge, which is to talk about multidisciplinary clinic approach to uh, prostate cancer and then discuss very briefly some of the uh, AUA index patients uh, with advanced uh, prostate cancer. So um, the uh, three the topics we're really going to cover are the role of the urologist, how do we work in a multidisciplinary setting, we're going to talk about the AUA evidence-based options, and then uh, wrap things up. So <clears throat> one of the important take-home messages that we'd like to uh, leave everyone with tonight is that really we believe that the urologist should be the primary care giver for men with prostate cancer. As we're familiar with the disease spectrum, especially as they progress through to uh, metastatic and castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Uh, we have the best sort of 360-degree view of the patient uh, and feel that we should be uh, sort of centrally involved. Um, the uh, 
patient's role, the, uh, the growth through the disease spectrum, as the slide says, but should not have to progress through many different specialists. It's nice to have the anchor of the urologist there. But we diagnose the cancer. We understand the progression. We understand the various management options. And very importantly, coordinating care between the specialists. And uh, when you look at all the problems that patients with prostate cancer have, be it localized or advanced, uh, I think it's pretty clear that having core urology uh, engagement in that process is uh, very important. Uh, another thing that should be done is to really think about in the modern era is multidisciplinary care of these patients. As Dr. Morgans uh, is a medical oncologist with us tonight, it highlights the fact that we need to work together with all of our other specialists who deal with men with prostate cancer. And doing this in a multidisciplinary castrate-resistant prostate cancer clinic is certainly an ideal we should all strive for. And we'll talk about some of the uh, options and uh, challenges that are available uh, in that area. But the reason that multidisciplinary care is very important, since 2010, has been an explosion of options of men with the, uh, for advanced, treating advanced prostate cancer. And we're really undergoing dramatic changes as more and more clinical trials come out and we have guidelines that are available that we'll go over at the end of this talk. But the many different treatment uh, options allow for many different approaches. And having a team approach of the urologist working with the medical oncologist and radiation oncologist is very important. And one of these approaches involves an actual shared uh, patient care model in a multidisciplinary clinic. We know that uh, reports from prostate cancer multidisciplinary clinics, such as the one that we founded, uh, way back in 1996 was for all men with advanced prostate cancer. It can improve patient satisfaction as well as improve uh, outcomes. And we also have this evidence now when all of the providers are together and other tumor markers, it benefits ultimately the patient. So if you can um, have a, uh, a clinic that has the newly diagnosed patient at the center, again, coordinating care, it's a very natural uh, segue to have a multidisciplinary castrate-resistant prostate cancer clinic. But if you don't have one, this is a very good time to think about the starting one where all the treatment options can be discussed with all the specialists on the same day. This minimizes uh, treatment regret, and it has a lot of benefits to the patient, decreases their burden on time and travel, helps with communication between specialists, and in any kind of environment, enhances the uh, educational uh, opportunities for everyone who's there. Now, the multidisciplinary uh, advanced prostate cancer clinic uh, needs time, space, and support staff. Uh, and again, it may not be available to everybody. Those of us that work in academic settings tend to have a little bit more flexibility in this. We understand that the all-in-one clinic may actually reduce productivity, and in some respects, an RVU models may have financial disincentives. So while we think it's wonderful to have these multidisciplinary castrate-resistant prostate cancer clinics, there are some alternatives uh, that we generally call virtual multidisciplinary clinics. The, dis the uh, patients with advanced prostate cancer can go through sequential coordinated visits. They can present at a tumor board. Or you can simply agree to critical care pathways among all the different specialists, how different patients at different stages are going to be treated. And again, the AUA uh, guidelines that we're going to talk about at the end are a wonderful starting off point for that discussion. One thing which is very new to us, it's very familiar in uh, medical oncology in the breast and ovarian cancer world, this concept of germline genetic testing. And I think that this is something that we need to begin to think about in these multidisciplinary uh, CRPC clinics where we're going to have patients with advanced prostate cancer who may benefit from germline genetic uh, testing. So here's one model uh, where the patient comes to the urologist, the urologist makes the diagnosis, and then uh, brings the patient to the multidisciplinary clinic and interacts in various ways uh, through clinical trials using uh, <clears throat> next generation sequencing for personalized treatment. Whatever the different options are available, the important thing, as you can see from this graphic, is there is continual interaction between the urologist, the medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist, and our support services, whether it's a social worker, a uh, uh, clinical trials coordinator, uh, a genetic counselor. It's very important for everybody to work together. <clears throat> On the uh, left-hand side of the slide there, again, there are virtual multidisciplinary clinic models that are 
certainly acceptable alternatives if you don't have the resources to have every doctor there uh, seeing the new patients at the same time. So the key ingredients of one of these uh, multidisciplinary clinics really involves a patient navigator, somebody who brings the patient in and sets up all of the coordinated appointments, making sure the pathology is there. Certainly we need uh, residents, uh, uh, advanced practice providers to help working with us. Very, very important, this is something we learned a long time ago at Jefferson, you need physician buy-in for this multidisciplinary clinic concept. Whether you're doing it for the newly diagnosed or for the castrate-resistant patient, all the providers have to be on board and really have to support it. Um, usually tumor boards can be held weekly to sort of do a double check on what you've done in the clinic. If you have a shared EMR, um, it's very helpful. Primary care doctors, let us not ignore them in this process. We do need primary care doctors to be on board with us to help with the overall management of these patients who may suffer from diabetes, uh, heart disease, uh, renal insufficiency. We gotta remember to coordinate with our primary care providers. And again, the support staff, very important in any type of multidisciplinary clinic operation. And, and lastly, offer the best evidence-based therapeutic options for patients with castrate-resistant prostate cancer and follow guidelines. And we're gonna talk about these. Dr. Morgan's touched on some of these, but we're gonna go through uh, um, these uh, in the next couple of minutes. So the AUA uh, castrate-resistant prostate cancer guidelines were recently amended. Uh, and Dr. Cookson was uh, one of the individuals involved with this process. And this is, uh, was necessary to, re, uh, to uh, bring up to date all of the rapidly evolving and approvals of enzalutamide and apalutamide, as Dr. Morgan's talked about, to serve this patient population. So while the guidelines have been around for a couple of years, they have been recently updated to uh, include this new, uh, these new therapeutics. So we all know the castrate-resistant prostate cancer treatment evolution really took off like a starter pistol was fired uh, in two, 2010. Now we have at least five or six new agents out there that are available to us to treat castrate-resistant prostate cancer across the spectrum of disease from asymptomatic, minimally symptomatic, through uh, more uh, significant uh, uh, life-threatening uh, late complications of, uh, of the disease. And again, this is a classic diagram that everyone has looked at at metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, how much the landscape has changed over the years. Now with the addition of apalutamide and a new indication for enzalutamide, as Dr. Morgan's reviewed, uh, has reviewed, we now are starting these treatments, which normally would be left later in the course of disease. Now we're starting them much earlier in the setting of M0 castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So the AUA index patients have been a wonderful addition. Uh, Dr. Cookson and many others were involved in this process to help us in urology make decisions. And these decisions uh, are, are based on real-life scenarios where these index patients were created based on whether or not they had uh, metastatic or localized disease, how bad were their symptoms, what's their performance status, and whether or not they had prior chemotherapy. So the AUA index patients for advanced castrate-resistant prostate cancer give us a roadmap on how to best uh, approach these patients in a very real-world, patient-centric uh, 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 method. So here's the six different AUA index patients, and we're going to come through these very quickly um, in this uh, last few minutes here. Uh, but uh, Dr. Morgan's talked about the first one, the asymptomatic patient with non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, and then we'll be waking our, working our way down through the list, going through different performance statuses and whether or not they've had prior docetaxel chemotherapy, because remember, that was all we had uh, in 2004, uh, and it still remains a mainstay of advanced prostate cancer, but again, it's a very important decision point whether patients are before chemotherapy or after chemotherapy. So let's look at the first index patient. This is already very nicely covered by Dr. Morgans. This is index patient one who has asymptomatic, non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, M0 disease. And again, as she noted, uh, clinicians should offer apalutamide or, or, or enzalutamide. And these patients uh, may also have simple observation recommended with continued androgen deprivation, uh, particularly if they're at high risk for developing uh, metastatic disease who do not want or cannot have one of the standard therapies. Um, 
you may, in this patient group, offer them second-generation angiogen synthesis, biosynthesis inhibitors such as abiraterone. If they're really concerned about the rapidity of the uh, rise of their PSA, uh, if they have high-risk disease, but the bottom line is for this patient, it is not recommended to offer them systemic chemotherapy or immunotherapy at this point outside of a clinical trial. And again, the Spartan trial and the PROSPER trial, nicely reviewed by Dr. Morgans, support the fact that using apalutamide with androgen deprivation or enzalutamide with androgen deprivation can uh, lead significant benefits and reduce uh, distant progression of uh, prostate cancer and improve metastasis-free survival. Let's move now to the next patient. This is a patient who comes in to see you with asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer, M1, patients not seeing chemotherapy before. So recommendation, offer this patient abiraterone or, uh, uh, or enzalutamide, docetaxel or cipulucyl T. The key thing in here, they're asymptomatic or minim minimally symptomatic. Um, you may offer first-generation antiandrogens if you cannot give them the standard therapy. But again, we don't consider that anymore to be the standard of care. But ketoconazole is available uh, to patients who are unable to uh, either afford or are not willing to take our newer uh, androgen receptor pathway blockers, immunotherapeutic agents, or chemotherapy. So what is this based on? Well, the uh, ANCHOR trial that led to the approval of uh, uh, abiraterone was the Cougar 302 trial. We're using um, abiraterone, 1,000 milligrams a day plus prednisone, led to a statistically significant better radiographic and overall survival in patients with uh, M0, excuse me, M1 disease who have not had prior chemotherapy. Everything that we're talking about is based on a clinical trial. We said that the AUA guidelines and the index patients were based on evidence, and the evidence we have are these very strong trials. A very similar trial, known as the PREVAIL trial, was the enzalutamide trial. Similar patient population, asymptomatic, minimally symptomatic, uh, but we had not yet seen chemotherapy. Again, gave a very significant improvement in the, uh, um, in the, the survival of men treated with enzalutamide. Uh, the co-primary endpoints had a decreased risk of progression or death, and overall about a 30% decreased risk of death. So enzalutamide. Uh, was approved uh, in this setting based on the PREVAIL trial. Docetaxel stays with us as an anchor treatment. Um, very key work was done uh, in the uh, uh, late 2000s, uh, in the late 2005-2008 uh, range, where uh, men were shown to improve overall survival with the use of uh, docetaxel uh, every, in a, every three-week cycle. And this is where docetaxel in 2004 became one of our most uh, standard medications. What about this patient now, minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic? Offering them cipulucyl T is very reasonable. Based on the IMPACT trial, you can see a survival benefit of approximately four months, but the trick is they must be minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic. But again, cipulucyl T represents an option for this uh, index patient. Now let's move up a little bit, index patient three has symptomatic metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, but good performance status and no prior chemotherapy. Again, offering them abiraterone or enzalutamide or docetaxel is very reasonable. Again, you may also offer this patient ketoconazole. Um, mitosantrone is mentioned, but again, mitosantrone is not commonly used. It was one of our palliative drugs but it is on the list of potential options. Or radionuclide therapy with something like radium-223 is also available to these patients. Index patient three is symptomatic, and radium-223 may benefit these patients with good performance status who have not seen chemotherapy before. Uh, however, patient, we no longer should be using estromustine uh, in, this, in these particular patients, or in the patient who is symptomatic, cipulucyl T should not be used. Radium-223, based on the ALSIMCA trial, has shown very significant uh, improvement versus uh, placebo in men treated by the uh, standard of care. And you can see here that there was an improvement uh, in about four months between the uh, the treatment arm and the placebo arm of this group of patients with, uh, with symptomatic metastatic history risk and prostate cancer before chemotherapy. Index patient five now is symptomatic, 
has metastatic disease, reasonably good performance status, but has failed chemotherapy, his options primarily should be recommended when a clinical trial is not available. And let's always remember clinical trials are one of our most important weapons we have for many of these patients. Uh, clinicians should offer these patients abiraterone, cabezataxel, or enzalutamide. Uh, cabezataxel, based on the TROPIC trial, uh, is a reasonable approach. It can extend the survival by three to four months when docetaxel has failed. So what do we have available to us in the post-docetaxel setting with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer? You can see here the clinical trials have all shown a benefit, whether it's the AFFIRM trial for enzalutamide, uh, the Cougar 301 trial, which is uh, in the setting of uh, post-chemotherapy, the TROPIC trial in the setting of post-chemotherapy, and radium-223 can offer patients significant, uh, significant advantages. So bottom line of my talk is that urologists should maintain themselves as the primary caregiver, uh, think very seriously about establishing a multidisciplinary castrate-resistant uh, clinic. If you already have an existing one, it's very easy to morph that into patients with more advanced disease. And remember to try to use the evidence-based therapeutic options and try to maintain familiarity. This is coming on very rapidly with many new drugs with the recent approval of apalutamide and the revised approval for enzalutamide. It's important that we keep track of all this. Uh, and the guidelines have been recently updated and should be, uh, should be referred to. Uh, this is our multidisciplinary team that I want to show to the world that we're very proud of with the multiple specialists, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, and support groups. So it's a great team we've been working with. Uh, they've all not been here since uh, 1996, uh, but I certainly have. So anyway, I'll turn it back over to Dr. Cookson. Thank you. Well, I, it looks like we're coming up on the hour here. I do want to remind people that there are many opportunities for learning. This was just uh, kind of one component to uh, one of the larger um, sessions that we hold in conjunction with the, uh, the AUA and the SUO. And so there, there will be an opportunity for this um, in Phoenix, and that's November 22nd, 27th. Um, we also have several of these webinars that are progressing through different aspects of advanced prostate cancer and castration resistance. And uh, the next one, I believe, is going to be on September the 12th. Um, and you can uh, check the um, auanet.org CRPC 2018 um, website for, for more details. Um, I'd like to ask our two speakers uh, for any um, closing thoughts they have um, and certainly want to thank them for their participation tonight. Um, thanks, Mike. I'll just I'll just quickly go to give Lenny a break because he just went through a huge amount of data. Um, so I would say from an M0 CRPC standpoint and from a biochemical, hormone-sensitive biochemical recurrence standpoint as well, it's really important from my perspective to think about patient selection because, um, you know, there are patients who will benefit from these treatments and then there are others who may not need for us to be so aggressive. And the labels, to be very clear, do not have PSA doubling time stipulations in them. And that's also something to know that you, you, know, you can treat these patients as you see fit. But I do think that uh, making sure that we understand and choose those high-risk patients as the ones that we expect to probably benefit the most um, is prudent. Thanks. Yeah, I, th I think that's a great point, emphasizing um, what was shown in the trials for enrollment included those uh, rapid doubling times of 10 months or less, and uh, your graphs uh, show that nicely, too, for the risk to developing metastases. Lenny, you're on mute. I thought I was the only one that could do that. Thank you. I, I, I wanted to make you look good, so I, I thought I would do it also. So anyway, doctor, having Dr. Morgan's here tonight is uh, emblematic of how we need to approach these patients uh, and understand that uh, their care is complex and rapidly evolving. And while the urologist really is a, is a core uh, in the longitudinal care of these patients, we really do need to interact very effectively with our medical oncology and radiation oncology oncologists to give these patients the best outcomes. All right. Well, on that note, I'll, I'll say uh, good night and uh, thanks, everybody, for attending. <laughs>